0: Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast. I'm your host, Heather Tesco. This episode will continue looking at the reign of Henry VIII as we go through the history of the Tudor monarchs. In addition to having a lot of wives, the one other thing that Henry VIII is most famous for is bringing Protestantism to England. Henry, knowing full well how to take advantage of trends, figured out a way to extricate himself from the Pope's power, get a divorce, get a new wife, start a new church, and make a ton of money, all in one fell swoop. He did have some help, though, so let's dive right in. In some way, it's ironic that Henry would be the first English monarch to fight the Pope. Let's set the stage. In 1517, a papal cleric named Johann Tetzel was sent to Germany to collect indulgences to help pay for a rebuild of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. At this time, there was only one Christian church in Europe, the Universal Catholic Church, of which the Pope was the head. Theology at the time stated that faith alone cannot save a man, but that faith demonstrated through charity and good works were the keys to salvation. In place of the good works, one could purchase indulgences, either for one's own self or for relatives who might be suffering in purgatory, and by donating the money, one would receive the same benefits as doing those good works. Martin Luther was a monk and a theology teacher at the University of Wittenberg who objected to the sale of indulgences. He initially wrote a letter to the archbishop of Magdeburg and Mainz dated thirty first of October, fifteen seventeen. In this letter he stated that salvation was God's alone to grant, and he objected to clerics leading people to believe that they could be saved by purchasing indulgences. The letter became known as the Ninety-Five Theses, was translated into German from the original Latin, and, aided by the new invention of the printing press, quickly spread throughout Germany and Europe. Within two weeks it had traveled throughout Germany, and within a few months all of Europe had read the Ninety-Five Theses, and thus the Protestant Reformation, Protestant coming from the word protest, was born. Luther became famous, students and theological thinkers swarmed to listen or debate with him, and a movement was underway. Henry VIII was still a young king, studying with Thomas More and believing himself to be pious and studious. He published a book, Assertio Septum Sacramentorum, Defense of the Seven Sacraments, Sacraments, which defended the authority of the Pope. In return, Pope Leo X granted Henry the title Defender of the Faith on November twenty-first, 1521. So yes, the early Henry who would become such a thorn in the side of later popes was actually a studious defender of papal authority when he was a younger king. As we will see later, Henry was only ever attracted to Protestantism in a limited way and mostly when it suited his own needs. Anyone who has ever attended an Anglican service will see that many parts of the service are incredibly similar to Catholic services. Henry never really embraced the complete ideals of the Reformers. More than anything, it was the Pope's authority over his right to rule his kingdom as he saw fit, including taking money to build monasteries that could be better put to use in Henry's treasury that he argued with the most. Thomas Cromwell, Henry's chief minister, rose to power during this period as well, since he was the leading advocate of breaking away from Rome entirely. The whole mess started in 1530, when Henry started proceedings to divorce Catherine of Aragon. For four years, Henry went through many of the proper procedural red tape, honoring clerical courts and appealing to the Pope as a good subject would. As the Pope dithered, mostly because Rome was held by Catherine's nephew at the time, who wasn't going to allow his aunt and his family to be humiliated by the upstart British king, Henry grew more and more impatient, threatening the English clergy and eventually the Pope's powers in England altogether. By 1534, four years into it, Henry went through with his threats and claimed authority over the English church for himself. The Act of Royal Supremacy in 1534 stated that the crown was reclaiming rightful powers that had always been in its possessions, powers that Rome had usurped during the previous 400 years. Henry seemed to truly believe this. Yet by the end of 1534, the English Church was still Catholic in everything but name, Despite the fact that Rome no longer ruled the church in England, there was no real difference in the services. Henry's advisors, including his chief minister, Thomas Cromwell, was advocating for many reforms, and Henry incorporated some evangelical ideas into his church. One of the most obvious changes was the dissolution of the monasteries, where Henry disbanded monasteries around the country, taking the money and land for his own treasury. This was a huge societal change, sweeping away an entire privileged clerical class of people, and was a very visible attack on the pre-Reformation church. It all happened very quickly as well. By 1540, it was completed, and would lead to other problems later on, as no one else stepped up to fill the gap left by the monasteries in helping the poor, caring for the sick, and giving hospitality to travelers opposition to henry's religious policies was also quickly suppressed in england a number of dissenting monks were tortured and executed the most prominent resistors were john fisher bishop of rochester and sir thomas more henry's own former tutor and lord chancellor both of whom refused to take the oath to the king and were subsequently convicted of high treason and beheaded at tower hill just outside the tower of london In 1536, the ten articles were produced as a guidebook outlining the new faith. These articles referred to just three sacraments, baptism, penance, and the Eucharist, rather than the usual seven. Not only was this radical, but it was also really confusing and led to debate over the missing four sacraments of Confirmation, Ordination, Marriage, and the Last Rites. A month later, Thomas Cromwell's injunctions took a moderate stand against images in the church and against pilgrimages, and it also banned some holy days and saints' days. The issue of transubstantiation, a greatly debated topic which dealt with whether the bread and wine at communion, communion really turned into the body and blood of Christ, was not specifically mentioned, and the Lutheran concept of justification by faith alone was watered down. So the official religion of England did not condemn the Mass, and it did not condemn the Catholic call for good works, but emphasis was laid on the words of the scriptures and the merits of faith alone. It was a tentative move in an evangelical direction. In 1537, the institution of a Christian man was a further attempt at a formulary of faith. It tried to deal with the questions of purgatory and the status of the four missing sacraments in the Ten Articles, which were now found to be lesser sacraments. It emphasized the fact that justification through the merits of Christ didn't dispense with the need for good works. On the issue of transubstantiation, the book was adamant that, under the form and figure of the bread and wine, which we there presently do see and perceive by outward senses, is verily, substantially, and really contained the very self-same body and blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. However, a great breakthrough for evangelicals did come in 1537, when royal permission was given for a vernacular version of the Bible so that common people could read and understand the Word of God. In 1538, Cromwell issued a further injunction that required that all churches acquire a copy of the English Bible. The central position of Scripture in the Protestant belief made it vital to make the text available, and in an official version, gave the English Bible a stamp of approval. Up until this time, the Bible was only available in Latin, and was only read by the educated priests and nobility, so that common people were relying on others for their interpretation of the Word of God. The idea that people could publish and read the Bible in England must have been a similar feeling to how we all felt about 15 years ago when we realized we could start blogs and publish websites on Geocities for free. It was a very exciting time. These three years, 1536 to 1538, marked the high watermark of officially sanctioned evangelical doctrine under Henry VIII. The king was a keen theologian and was prepared to incorporate evangelical ideas into his new church where he saw fit, but he wasn't comfortable with the alterations, and from 1539 onwards he reversed most of his previous policies. In 1539, The act of six articles returned the Church to unambiguous Catholic orthodoxy apart from papal supremacy. Amongst other things, transubstantiation and confession were reaffirmed. Clerical marriage, which had crept in, was condemned again, and vows of chastity were now held to be unbreakable, which was a big embarrassment to the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, whose own marriage was an open secret at the time. More significantly, under this act, heresy again became a felony. This was a clear signal that Henry VIII wouldn't tolerate those with radical religious views. Henry tried to establish a consensus between the Protestants and the Conservatives. Protestants were punished for violating the six articles, while Catholics were punished for denying the royal supremacy and worshipping the Pope. Not everybody was happy with the changes that were going on. The suppression of the Catholics, including the dissolution of the Monasteries Act in 1536, contributed to resistance among the English people, who believed that all the good work of the monasteries was being destroyed and their country was suffering for it. The largest rebellion was the Pilgrimage of Grace, a large uprising in northern England in October 1536. Henry VIII promised the rebels that he would pardon them and thanked them for raising the issues that they did to his attention, and then he invited their rebel leader Robert Ask to a royal banquet. At the banquet, Henry asked Ask to write down what had happened so that he could have a better idea of the problems that he would change. He essentially trisk- tricked Robert Ask into trusting him, so Ask wrote down all of the things that the king had asked him to. And that would later be used as his own confession. And the king's word could not be questioned as he was held as God's chosen person and second only to God himself. So Robert Ask told the rebels that they had been successful and they could disperse and go home. However, because Henry saw the rebels as traitors, he didn't feel obligated to keep his promises. The rebels realized that the king was not keeping his promises and rebelled again later that year but with a lesser strength, and in the second attempt, the king ordered the rebellion crushed. All of the leaders, including Robert Ask, were arrested and executed for treason. William Tyndale was another example of someone who wasn't so happy with the religious changes going on. Although he was a reformer, famous for his translations of the Bible, many of which were included in the later King James Version of the English Bible, He angered Henry by writing that his divorce of Catherine of Aragon was against the scriptures and was just a plot from the Catholics in England to get Henry caught up in the papal courts and then take over England. That angered Henry, and Tyndale suddenly had both the English and papal clerics hunting him down. He was eventually found in 1536 in Antwerp after being betrayed by a supposed friend with whom he was staying. Despite Thomas Cromwell interceding on his behalf, he was still strangled at the stake and then his dead body was burned. Tyndale's last words were, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Until Henry's death in 1547, the Act of Six Articles remained the basis of the Church's faith. In 1543, a necessary doctrine and erudition for any Christian man came down entirely on the side of traditional orthodoxy, and merely replaced the papal supremacy with the king's authority. Any traces of Lutheranism that were present in the book of 1537's Institution of a Christian Man had now disappeared. Although the English Bible was retained, access to it was really restricted, and by the Act for the Advancement of True Religion in 1543, it allowed only upper-class men and women to read the Bible, and only women were allowed to read it in private, so women couldn't even read it in public. Henry VIII had played with the Protestant ideas when it suited him, but ultimately he proved to be conservative on matters of religious doctrine. Later on, Edward VI and his advisors—Edward VI was Henry's son— And his advisors would turn England into something more like a genuine Protestant country. But it wasn't Henry VIII, although he did get that started. So thank you for listening to the Renaissance English History Podcast. You can send me email and ideas for future shows by going to the blog at http colon slash slash englandcast.blogspot.com. And I will be back again soon with a future episode. Thank you. Blow northern wind Ascent for maybe sweating. Blow Northern Wind. Blow 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 Echo Bourdin Bower Breek That's Soli Samne is on seat Means full my of meat fair and fray to fall. Hold blood of bone, never yet in up? What was that?